Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia. This is episode 24. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our current events segment, we'll discuss the recent deaths of two migrant children, Felipe Gomez Alonso and Jacqueline Calmaquin. For our deep thought segment, we'll discuss sex. For our case segment, we will discuss Buck v. Bell, the case that held that a Virginia statute allowing the forced sterilization of an individual judged, quote-unquote, feeble-minded, did not violate her constitutional rights. But before we get to any of this, let's just start with a brief check-in. Yvette, how have you been since folks last heard from you? I've been good. Um, little Moko, my cat, is good. <laughs> um, I was, I, since we last recorded, I went to the Bay for the holidays, and that was really, really nice because I got to see my partner, Joseph, and my whole family, and also I brought my cat, Moko, with me, so she got to meet my whole family, and she got to bond more with Joseph. How did you so like great. traveling? Mocha, she was very confused about what was happening, and she, like, actually hates being in cars more than she dislikes airplanes, Mm -hmm. but, like, she was really mad at me that I was keeping her in the carrier because the airline policy is that you put your cat in a soft carrier, and then you put the carrier underneath the seat in front of you, (laughs) and so she was just, like, meow, like, after at the second leg of the trip she was meowing like please let me out please let me out and it was, it broke my heart That's but so <laughs> i know okay so this is really wild cats evolved to cuz because they wanted humans to take care of them and they've evo- like developed these characteristics that make them really appealing to humans so like cats meows are and like their um purrs are the same frequency as baby as like human baby cries oh wow i had no idea that was a thing yeah it, it elicits like the same emotions so i'm just like no my child wow that's real <laughs> i know it's okay though Moka can manipulate me it's fine <laughs> how have you been now that you're back at stanford cares um i'm almost done i had a wonderful wonderful summer in new orleans i had an amazing amazing quarter in nashville i had an, a, like i was surrounded by all my favorite people for two weeks in mexico and la i've just like i just turned 27 and everything's looking really great i you know i feel loved i feel like I'm doing work that's gonna really let me feel like I'm making an impact and like live with purpose and I think I'm gonna be you know I'm surrounded by people who I really care for and you know I really want to take advantage of having them all in one place here at school I you know I, I mean like there's things about Stanford that really suck and I have a lot of work to do I'm applying for the bar I, like, have to pay $850, which I'm, like, not sure where I'm going to get it from, but I'll figure it out. Um, And, like, 
it's it's very stressful, but I'm very I'm feeling very lucky and very fortunate and you know, like I don't know, it just things feel good and things feel like I'm closer and closer every day to creating the life that I envision for myself and you know, I'm just trying to make sure I keep, you know, leveling up and like developing good habits and improving myself. I don't know. I feel good. I've been working on my intentions and my goals for a while. Now I didn't like wait for the new year and I feel good about that. So I'm just in a good place, like lots of work, but I see the path forward and steady, you know, slow and steady wins the race. (laughs) Not that it's a race. That's dope. That all sounds really cool. I hear your trip to Mexico looked so fun. It was. I just like, I love my family a lot and the cousins like my best friend um, came with me and my parents are also kind of my best friends and then my cousin Anya and um, Brittany like they grew up with me like closer than my sisters like and I just got to hang out with them for two weeks and eat delicious food and see really cool places I mean like being in Mexico is always a double-edged sword because like it's such a repressive government and like everybody's hopeful with the presidential change um but like it things are you know things are bad in Mexico there's a lot of human rights abuses and talking with like half about half if not more than of my family is there and so like I I got into it with some of my family members because I was just like your views are fucked up and I was just going back and forth um Luckily, my aunt really loves me, so I know I'll get invited back. But, like, my my other um, family members were not happy with me. And, like... <laughs> <laughs> Why? Wait, what specifically were you talking about? Um, a lot of things. Like, we were talking about borders, gay, and LGBTQ rights in general. But, like, they were... They brought up, for some reason, like, a gay couple being allowed to, like, adopt. And I was just, like, furious. Um, and... Like, they were talking about trans, like, I have an aunt by marriage (laughs) who is, like, super religious, although a lot of my family is super religious, and she was just, like, she has a family member who has transitioned, and she still calls him by the name, like, the female name he was given, Mm -hmm. and, like, and so I was just, like, you have no idea how much harm you cause, like, day to day with your existence. So yeah. I was, like, so I'm going to make you very angry by being really rude. And so I was just really mean to her. And I called her, like, backwards and all these things. It was a lot of fun. It's so- really important to call out misgendering when people misgender others because I think people don't see it as something that's that harmful. Like, they, it's like, oh, it's a, a slight, it's an insult, whatever, but... Uh, I watched Janetta Johnson from TGIJP in San Francisco talk about how, for her, a lot of the random violence that she would encounter in the street just for being herself what would always be accompanied by being misgendered. And so she's like, it like for me to be misgendered, it triggers all of those violent times that I've been beaten. And I think people don't recognize like how deep the hurt really is when you misgender somebody. Yeah, and then, like, I, I've i gotten in, my, one of my aunts that was there, I've gotten into it with her and, like, have gotten into it with others in front of her. Um, and, she, and she, like, always tells me, like, you need to be more tolerant. Like, you need to learn how to, like, be more tolerant. And, like, I've tried to explain to her, like, look, I have limited amounts of energy. 
I by no means am okay with letting people say things like this in front of me without it being like made uncomfortable or challenged in some way. But I like know or can like get a sense for when there's someone who maybe I'm going to be able to like this could be a learning moment for all of us. Like maybe I can tell you something that, you know, reframe it in a way that you haven't thought about it before, point out how maybe there's things you're not considering and maybe we can all grow. And that those situations are always great. And I'm always like, it's always very exciting, you know, when you have one of those. But then there's times when there's people who are not going to change their, their ways, who have resources, who have for some reason or another, like, you know, just 100% believe that what they were born, you know, what they were raised to think is the right way and, you know, are, are stuck in it. And so for those people, I'm like, why do I have to waste my time and my energy, like being thoughtful? Like, no, my goal then, if I can't change you and that's fine, like not fine, I wish you would, but in times when I'm not going to, I'm not gonna like, I don't know. I'm just not going to invest in them. And all I'm going to do is make you uncomfortable because like that's I feel like the most that I can do and the most productive thing is to make you uncomfortable in the way that you go around making others uncomfortable with your like classist or like other phobic beliefs. So it's it was but and then like that's only part of my family. I have a ton of family who's really great and open minded and We'll talk later today just how progressive some of my family is. Um, but, yeah, it's always just going to Mexico is a mixed bag because you, at the same time, I'm trying to find the pride, relearn my history, and, you know, not, you know, just be very, very proud of the fact that I'm Mexican and and not let, like, everything that the U.S. kind of the dialogue is get to me. But at the same time, like, Mexico is so problematic and – there's just a ton of issues that people within Mexico replicate and like power structures that they replicate. So it's, it's just like, it's, it's complexity that you just kind of have to hold whenever, you know, whenever you're in the space. So, but it was, it was a great time. I learned a lot. I learned my Aztec name, which was amazing. So I had a good time. What's your Aztec name? Lili Xochitl. It's based on the day you're born. So like uh, this man, that I ran into into San Miguel in San Miguel de Allende, he's like studied a lot of like um, the Aztec culture and traditions, and like he's just really like investigated and and learned the history that's kind of been buried. And he was just there, and me and my friend were just like really attracted to him. Like there was like because we were we weren't there, we were just like kind of walking by, but then we like saw his stuff and like. We just like kind of had to go over and it was like a really great experience. Mm-hmm. Like we had a really great conversation and he he just told us a lot. He taught us like Nahuatl words and um, oh, cool. Yeah, it was really, really dope. That was like a, and then he gave us like little pouches with our names and like like st- different stones um, for different purposes in them. And it was just like it was such a good experience. And so and my yeah, it was just I really love Mexico and I love being in Mexico. Cool. So Yvette, do you want to talk about the bar exam? I, don't, I feel like we didn't talk about that. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to update um, because the last episode what <clears throat> that we you and I recorded together was the one with Briska. And, and then before that, um, we did the, the one where I first shared that I didn't pass the California bar. And I was like also sharing how I was upset about all the things in my job and 
just having a complete existential crisis about whether or not I even wanted to be in legal practice at all. And the existential crisis is ongoing, but (laughs) recently my job, uh, the board members of my organization voted to give everybody a raise. And let me say it was a good raise (laughs) because uh, it it made me decide that I should stay because like, like the things that I want to do, I think I'm not going to, I'm not able to monetize in the same way or like I'm not able to monetize to the extent that I can reach the income that I have now. And like, I was just in this like, yes, like my job is really hard and I do have really sad days a lot, but also like I remembered being broke and that was like its own kind of difficulty you know and like I was like sad then for like different reasons related to being broke and so it's like I just was real with myself and like honestly I have gained a lot of privilege and like have come to expect a certain lifestyle and I've just grown accustomed to it and it feels kind of strange to say that but I'm just honest and the I think that was like a huge reason why I decided to stay And so I am taking the Arizona bar in February um, because my, uh, the like pass rate is way better than in California and it's, it was cheaper because like the California, I was so upset at how much I spent for the California one. And like, I don't even necessarily want to move back to California anytime soon. And Arizona is a UBE exam. Oh, which I feel like is like good to share with people just so folks know because I just learned this so like uh some states abide by the UBE bar exam which means that within if you within three to five years of taking the uh, exam if you passed it then you can use that to transfer your state bar membership to another state that also recognizes UBE so it's really nice because like you know it just it's shitty if and constricting to always have to take a new bar exam anytime you want to move to a new state Yeah, so then I decided to do that. And, like, honestly, for anybody who's like, wow, like, Yvette's on an emotional roller coaster talking about how much she hates legal practice. And then now she's staying in legal practice and taking the bar. And it's like, if you feel that way, that's like how I feel. (laughs) I feel very confused as well. But I'm just trying to, like, honestly, I'm just being practical at this time and taking things day by day and, like, also just my goal is also just to reunite with Joseph because we've been apart for too long <laughs> and yeah we're he's gonna come in February and we're both gonna study for the bar together that's awesome um I'm glad mm-hmm. that you like he'll be there because I think yeah having people who support you is like key when mm-hmm. through all this and yeah no the UB the whole bar situation is just fucked up and it's like frustrating because everybody knows the bar was set up to exclude people from the profession and it's Mm -hmm. just really not it serves no purpose really at quality amongst the legal field clearly Mm -mm. unethical (laughs) people can pass the bar so yeah it's just a frustrating like, I have to pay $850 to the state of Louisiana. Like, what? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I ended up paying, like, a thousand something altogether for California, and that's why I was like, I just can't afford that again. <laughs> like, I don't... That's too much. Yeah. 
Okay, but before we should move to the current event, but before we do that, I wanted to talk about our sponsor for today, which is Youth Testify. Youth Testify is a program of the National Network of Abortion Funds and Advocates for Youth. And basically what it is is that young leaders in the Youth Testify program are sharing their abortion stories to show why it's important for them to have access to abortion care when they need it. And so, like, if you think about it, about how difficult it is to have abortion access in this country, like, just think of the other challenges that young folks face when they're trying to get an abortion. So, for example, they have to get permission from a judge or a guardian, which is absolutely awful and, like, Mm -hmm. must be really terrifying. And they have to miss school or work for multiple appointments. And they have to raise, like, hundreds of dollars to pay for it. And when you're young, it's hard to get you know, well-paying jobs or jobs that, like, give you lots of hours and you have school and everything. So there's all these different challenges. And so young people need control over their lives, their bodies, and their futures, and that's why they're leading the fight for abortion access. And if you want to learn more, you should visit youthtestify.org. And I really recommend it. I think we've talked about abortion before on this show and y'all know our views and in a bit we're going to talk about sex and this just goes all together i really i i think it's just all one big conversation i think it's amazing that this is all led by youth who are directly impacted i think that youth-driven movements are always the most powerful even though i feel like a lot of times youth voices are silenced and dismissed as juvenile and not important and I'm really inspired by these young folks that are talking about the importance of having control over their own bodies and like you said the getting permission from a judge or a guardian is really terrifying because for a lot of folks depending on what your parental what the views of your parents are and also how they act on those views can be a life-threatening thing for you you know like for a lot of people letting their parents know that they're pregnant could have disastrous consequences for their lives and their well-being so I think this is a really really important topic and I'm honored to be able to shout this out okay Yvette do you want to go into our current event yeah um so before kind of going into these two most recent deaths border patrol custody I just wanted to say that migrant deaths happen all the time The more that the border has become militarized and thus forced people to cross into the U.S. in very dangerous areas and routes, like through the river and through the desert, the more routine these deaths have become. And I want to say that this is an intentional act on the part of the U.S. government, like the fact that the wall doesn't extend in the areas that are most dangerous to cross is not a coincidence, you know, that's part of the deterrence policy is the assumption that people are going to die along the way. Um, And that's, that's truly disgusting and something that we need to recognize that our government is responsible for doing. And also I want to say that, you know, in response to Trump's rhetoric about how there's a crisis at the border. Yeah, there is a crisis at the border and Trump and Obama and the architects of this immigration system are the ones who are creating this crisis because when we allow freedom of movement to occur, migration flows occur naturally and we don't have forced deaths 
across in you know in the the area between us and mexico it's uh to that point i feel like it's i've realized in conversations that i've had with folks about open borders and letting like migration flow naturally people even liberals are so terrified in their minds about like having huge levels of migration and it's mm-hmm. just so infuriating because i just wish folks realized how wealthy this country is and how mm-hmm. we give so many so much money to f- folks who are already wealthy like this country's laws and our budget spending and our priorities are 100% making the rich richer and the poor poorer and it's not that we don't have enough resources to welcome folks whose countries we've robbed and fucked up like we do have enough resources we're just currently giving them to folks who don't need them and we it's just in in folks minds they're so concerned about resources but it's like stop like please realize how wealthy this country is and please realize how wealthy like a handful of people in this country are. So I just wanted to make that point because it's just come up in so many conversations and it's just disheartening. This country is incredibly wealthy. And, you know, if so, just taking the border wall project alone, if all the money that it, that Trump is attempting to appropriate to that wall was just given to the Northern Triangle as reparations and as like something that would allow the economies of Central American countries to improve, people wouldn't come. That's the thing. It's like people think that like there's these mass migrations of people because everyone thinks that the U.S. is this utopia. People definitely have this idea of the U.S. as a place where you can improve yourself and make a lot of money. But also like people love their countries of origin. Like, if there wasn't mass violence, if there wasn't mass poverty, people would be down to stay, you know, like, their countries are beautiful, like, they, like, have a relationship with the land that's longstanding and generational, like, people don't want to, not everybody wants to move to the U.S., it's just because of U.S. intervention that causes these migrations to occur, and it's like, if you don't want masses of people coming, don't shatter entire economies you know don't prop up dictatorships don't prop up right-wing fascists like i'm over Ugh, i'm done no but keep okay going. <laughs> <laughs> um so now that we've kind of given a good framework of this most recent occurrence um most recently two minors died in dhs custody within a month month of december so felipe died on christmas eve and border patrol agents apparently noticed that he had glossy eyes and symptoms of the flu and so he was sent to a hospital for help and despite him having flu-like symptoms and you know i i'm just gonna say this like if border patrol sends sends you to the hospital your shit is really dire because they ignore everything like there's like medical neglect left and right so you know that if this child was sent to the hospital there was something serious occurring but when he arrived he was given ibuprofen and diagnosed with a common cold ibuprofen like what you take when you have a headache that doesn't make any sense it's 
it just makes me want to cry to think about how neglected this child was. Like, how do you look someone in the eye and just to say, like, this poor child, like, <laughs> who's obviously sick and all you say is, oh, just take a Tylenol and wait it out. Like, what disregard for human life. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this came up in the interview with Ana Maria, too, of her when... She was at the border at Tijuana. She was saying that she was shocked at how she wasn't even experiencing hatred. Like her, like the clients that she was trying to help present at the port of entry were just treated like with indifference. Like you don't even matter. I'm, it's like you don't even matter enough to be hateful. I just don't see you. Uh, and that's that's what I feel and see for the folks who are detained. But... I wanted to bring, yeah, you know, but I wanted to bring this up also to point out that medical care is abysmal in these institutions there because this is in many ways a profit making mechanism for the private detention centers and, um, and also the government just doesn't want to expend resources that are necessary to like actually have a medical care system that could respond adequately to immigrant needs. And this is why people die while they're in detention, while they're in ICE custody. And it's it's really tragic. Yeah, it's just the government should not be responsible for human life because uh, it's just awful. And just, I don't know what else there is to say, though. It's just like, uh, this has been happening and I... You know, like, it's always, like, I feel like maybe folks respond stronger when it's, like, children, but, like, I, like, when adults yeah. die, yeah. it's, like, just as tragic. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't know, personally, that's how I view life. Um, And this, you know, this is just, it's story after story, and, yeah, we're, here we are, like, not forcing the U.S. government to act differently, and... I mean, I guess we're trying, but I, I don't know. This just, this is just disheartening. Yeah. I agree that I can't believe that the U.S. government takes people's lives into its custody because it's obviously not, and also like Border Patrol is obviously not equipped to be able to detain people for long periods of time either. And I think that that might have been part of what occurred here because the, some articles that I was reading pointed out that it was actually strange that Felipe and his dad were detained for a week without explanation because usually if you have a child with you, it's agency policy to release them within 72 hours. And it's like, that's obviously a sane policy. How are you, why are you keeping children in cages? Humans don't belong in cages. Nobody belongs in a cage. Like we just, there's... Uh, I just, I don't know what else to say, you know, like, it's just this, this whole system has to go, and mm-hmm. we're, it's not, a- especially these little babies, so now I wanted to talk about Jacqueline, who died of dehydration and shock 36 hours after being in CBP custody, mm-hmm. and I wanted to shout out the episode that we did record in nashville where or no actually oh we mentioned this during our asylum live q a actually the yeleras where mm-hmm. uh, i the, the like very very cold kind of holding cells 
in transition uh, once people have been apprehended at um, like trying to cross the border and like it's been said that like people are basically just given aluminum blankets and are placed in these rooms that are so cold that people legitimately call them yeleras and we just i just want to point out that they put kids in there and yeah. that and i like really appreciate the bravery of jack jacqueline's family to publicly say that she because ice was trying to paint the story about how they weren't responsible for Jacqueline's death, that like she had pre-existing health issues and that it just happened that she died in their custody. And I thought it was really brave that her family was like, no, that did not happen. She did not have pre-existing symptoms prior to entering CBP custody. See, you know, and I think that that's really brave because like, like, I don't know if that's a mixed status family or, but like, I don't know. I think just any time that you're publicly making a statement saying that the U.S. government is lying, that's really, really brave. Also, I just cannot get over the fucking hypocrisy of these people. Like, here they are being like, oh, it's not our fault. She hadn't eaten or drank water. It's like, also, you guys knock over water and food yeah. left over yeah. for folks to eat so that yeah. they don't get sick and but you're like like you're causing the scenario like either way you're guilty like if she hadn't eaten or drank right. water it's still your fault because you go and knock it over so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> amen so current dhs the head of dhs the department of homeland security nielsen has stated quote-unquote, she doesn't have the exact number of immigrant deaths while in DHS custody. And I just want to point out, that's shady as fuck. Like, like, and I think I just want to highlight that, like, there are so many deaths that I'm sure she just doesn't want to publicly say how many there are. Yeah. And it's it's not surprising, though, to hear that. The fact, mm -hmm. if they she doesn't have the exact number, it's not hard for me to believe because they just... Yeah, but no les conviene. Like, que pendejos no están. Like, exactly. Why would they, yeah. why would they be tracking yeah. this? Yeah, I agree. It's either like they aren't tracking it because they know it's smart not to track it, or they know and she just doesn't want to publicly say. So you and I earlier were talking about what what points we wanted to make about this story, and I feel like we both just experienced this collective exhaustion of just like this is really terrible, and I don't this is a really terrible period and I don't even know what else to say about it. And I just think that living under the Trump administration, I think has that effect on you of like opening up the news and seeing like blah, blah, blah is fired. Like blah, blah, blah is under investigation. Like, like Trump said this about North Korea. And it's like, it's just living under a constant state of anxiety on top of the personal anxieties that we all have you know in our daily lives and especially with the stuff about the border you know because we talk about this so much we talk about the border so much and it's just like it's kind of exhausting to to stay in that headspace as often as we do and as often as I do because I'm living in Arizona and doing this work yeah no I think it's the analysis is done the points have been made like there's yeah it's just like clear how shitty everything is and it feels unnecessary to say anything beyond that like this is just wrong this needs Mm -hmm. to stop and there's just you know it's just like it's just a matter of time like how much are we gonna wait and I feel disheartened a lot of the times like Mm 
it just it feels like yeah. we're not moving quickly enough towards progress and a better mm-hmm. a better world but i you know i can i can think that for an hour i can think that you know for a day but i don't know i the only <laughs> the only life worth living for me is the one in which i'm struggling against this system so that's not going to change and I am going to be in my feelings for a bit, but then, you know, I'm going to, like, I'm getting ready, like, this next weekend, I'm going to go to Tijuana uh, to, with a group from Stanford to help out folks, you know, applying for asylum and, and teach them about asylum law, and so there's always opportunities to fight back a little bit, resist, take some mm-hmm. chips, and, but, like, when it, folks are ready for the revolution, like, please let me know, I'm just waiting until there's critical mass, I love those border trips, I think. Those, they're always just so illuminating. Yeah, I mean, I was just at the border. I drove to Mexico and uh, just, it's, yeah, it's uh, driving, being at the border, just existing in that space. It's, yeah, it's rough. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to shout out and say that, like, when we feel overwhelmed like this, we we should also uplift the work that people have been doing and people are still doing to resist. I know it's really easy to feel like nothing is being done, but there's really really rad people who are stepping up and who are living in ways that reflect the world that they want to live in ultimately, eventually. And so I'm talking specifically right now about No More Deaths, a humanitarian aid organization in Tucson that leaves uh, water at critical spots along the desert route uh, because people often die of dehydration on the route. And this group, there's certain volunteers in the group that are facing criminal charges for the aid that they provided. The government is alleging that they participated in alien smuggling. And so I think that um, wherever there's resistance, there's also backlash from the government. And I think that's really reflected in the No More Deaths folks. And in the show notes, we can include... Um, a link so that people can donate to their legal fees if folks are interested in doing that. Okay, let's change the subject quite radically. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So for deep thoughts, I wanted to talk about sex and the re- there's a lot a lot of reasons to talk about sex, uh, but specifically the reason that I most wanted to talk about today is that I feel like there's a lot of stereotypes about sexuality that we're taught when we're growing up. You know, there's I think expectations, you know, if, if you're a good girl, you're not sexual. And I think this, per, like, is pervasive and, you know, it's present in all of, like, U.S. society. But I think it's it takes a different tint in the Latinx, um, especially, like, also immigrant, you know, um, mm-hmm. culture and, and ways that our parents were raised and how they intend to raise us. So, I, yeah, so that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. Because I think for a lot of us, it was probably, like something that we really remember either like the absence of or the manner that it was taught to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was hesitant to talk about this and then I feel like reflecting on it, it's probably just my own internalized Catholic shame, which will be a huge theme in what I share for this segment. 
because uh, I grew up Catholic and my parents are very Catholic. And so, you know, I grew up hearing my mom talk down on my cousins who were living with their long-term boyfriends. And I was definitely made to feel like my virginity was worth a lot and tied directly to my worth in society. Like that is something that was definitely communicated to me. And yeah. I think not like explicitly like that, but like just in so many ways, the message was very clear to me. Oh, yeah. I Yeah, for sure. I got that message loud and clear. And it goes to this, I like this, like, slogan that's come up where it's ni santas ni putas. And it just, like, proves, like, just showing, just rejecting the dichotomy. Like, I'm not a saint and I'm not a, like, I guess the best translation for puta would be whore. And mm-hmm. and it's just saying, I'm not a saint. I'm not a whore. I'm a woman. Like, enjoy me and my complexity. Enjoy me and my sexuality. And so there's definitely that dichotomy. Yeah, I like learned about this as the virgin whore dichotomy, and I think there are many repressed cishet men who abide by it only to their own detriment, you know, where they think that a woman is either asexual, untouchable, and pure, or solely seen as a sex object. And I think it's to their detriment because it's like you said, they don't get to see women in their full complexity. And I think that that kind of, it's like, I think it's impossible to have an intimate relationship with a woman if you have that understanding, you know, because like, you're never going to have both like an amazing sex life and also a really deep, intimate, emotional connection because you, you can't fathom a person holding both of those for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it's always like being very having these conversations and being public about sexuality and sex is very important to me because it like it feels like it's crucial to feel free and independent for me like in in my personality and in what I consider like you know being close to one someone like what you're saying about getting to know someone like I think being open about this subject and sex and sexuality and all of it is so is so is such a part of feeling free and independent yeah I think it's super important to talk about sex and I think that that's not pushed enough or emphasized enough in like having a healthy relationship with somebody I don't think we're um you know you had asked what what I hadn't learned growing up and like, I didn't learn like how to have a conversation with the partner about what you like and what you don't like, you know? And I, I just wanted to say thank you for suggesting this topic because I would say I'm generally more private about this topic. Although I feel like I can't really say that because I'm releasing this podcast to thousands of listeners, but (laughs) I think it's, I actually, I like am in general more private about it, but like, I do think it's important to talk about sex with my close friends because I think like we learn from each other, we stay informed and like, it it just, it shakes the stigma like you were saying earlier. Yeah. So I want to talk about that starting, like how sexuality was viewed while we were growing up and, you know, kind of what we were taught because I think it's important. I to reflect on it so we don't to like don't recreate things unintentionally right yeah when you when you leave some area of your life like unexamined I feel like you're more likely to repeat it without thinking or realizing it and so definitely when I was when I was growing up I know it was just like 
not really discussed at all. And when it, like, sex and the fact that, like, as a, like, I was going to be a sexual being one day, like, I don't know, like, put an age, whatever you think is appropriate, but, like, that whole thing was just not discussed. And when it, like, the times it was discussed, it was used, like, metaphors and also very, like, not sex positive, but very negatively. So, for example, like, I grew up, and I'm sure so many people did too, like, growing up about how women are flowers. And, like, the example that was told to me by my parents, which they've, like, you know, they feel bad about it now, and they've, like, reflected. But, like, what they taught me was, like, I'm a flower, right? And so, like, if you imagine a flower, if you, like, the flower is, like, one person touches the flower, like, the oils from the person's hand like, kind of destroys the flower a little bit, right? And then someone, if someone else comes and touches that same flower, like, that flower is going to be a little bit more destroyed. And, like, that, like, that's what was taught to me. Like, if you let people touch yeah. you, like, they're, you're, they're destroying your worth. They're destroying how, like, your attractiveness. And, like, it's such a common thing, but I was just like, that's exactly yeah. when I I've see the I've heard the dirty it, Band-Aid example. Have you heard that? <laughs> no. That, like, yeah, that, like, you're, like, a woman's a Band-Aid, and, like, if you, you like, nobody wants a used Band-Aid. I have not heard of that in my life, but interesting. Oh, yeah. Catholic school stories. Yeah, no, I was raised with the flower example. That's what my parents used. And my parents, I don't think they were super strict. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I was, like, limited a lot, you know, and there was a lot of ways that they gave me independence, but they were strict when it came to this. And so, like, when I had boyfriends, like, that time would be, like, really monitored and, like, where I was and where my boyfriend was and, like, having my room door open and, like, making sure, like, I wasn't going to be alone with them or, you know, dark spaces. Like, and that, so that, like, that was something that where my parents attempted to be strict and I was just very creative. And, but, like, that changed when I left for college in that I think, like, leaving for college just made it possible so that I can have the relationship that I have with my parents now. How was it for you? I feel like I was made aware at a very young age of my sexuality and like the possibility of being sexualized. But it was very strange because at the same time, sex itself was never discussed. But I was just like always, you know, made aware that like I had to be really aware of how I navigated the world and how people would react to me like wearing skirts and what that would mean and like you know like not being alone with male relatives just like that was I just was like constantly reminded that I always needed to protect myself because like I was saying earlier my virginity and my pureness was directly tied to my worth as a person so I always need to be protecting that and being on alert for that and I hear you on the you know having to protect yourself like my mom and my dad always made like really big efforts like that's something that like every time we were gonna they would drop us off at someone's house or something or we were going somewhere or they were leaving like always always like they had like four bullet points that they would go over and like one of them was always like do not be alone with any grown men like do not if mm-hmm. like anybody touches you, they have no right to, and you need to come tell me immediately. Even if they tell you they're gonna hurt me, like you need to come tell me. Like that, mm-hmm. that refrain was very, very common all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so okay, so to summarize my childhood, it was like me being made aware of the fact that like the fact that I was a girl meant that I needed to navigate the world in a very careful way. 
but at the same time, like sex was never discussed, so I had no idea what that was about. And I my I was actually raised very strictly when it came to this. I think in general, but also like for sure, especially when it came to this. I wasn't allowed to have boyfriends. And once I got in huge trouble when I was 14 because I pretended to walk my dog in order to go hang out with a boy who lived in my neighborhood. <laughs> and it was so innocent. Cynthia, we were like meeting up in a park, like to hang out. Like it was beyond innocent. I don't think we even kissed. We just like hung out. So what did how did your mom find out or what? Oh, happened? because she was like she was hella suspicious from the get-go because I never walked my dog. <laughs> like she was like, What? Evie's walking the dog voluntarily. Something something's wrong. Something the fuck is up. <laughs> and so because <laughs> I like no I I never got along with my dog and like Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never, I, it was true. I literally had never, it was probably the first time I had offered to take my dog on a walk. And I think, I forget what she did. She might've just like followed me and driven or some, I don't know. I was somehow caught. I think I was caught like walking back maybe. And then she was like, she thought that I was meeting a drug dealer. She, it was like, <laughs> she made it so dramatic, like took it way out of proportion. And she took my phone away and locked me in my room and so that and actually like being treated like that is the reason why I wanted to move to the east coast for undergrad because I was like fuck this like I'm gonna live my life and I can tell that you're not gonna let me live it the way I want to live it if I stay here so I'm gonna move across the country (laughs) bye I mean you're not the first yeah to say that and not the last either like it's yeah Mm parenting you gotta make those tough choices because then sometimes things like that will happen yeah and I think like with more time and space I think my mom has reflected and I've reflected we've kind of come to understand each other about why we acted the way we did back then and she respects my autonomy a lot a lot more now yeah I want to talk now about that kind of aspect you know when you you know reflected on how your parents taught you and how I like me reflecting on my parents and just I feel like my parents always like oh it's so easy for you to say it like but when you're a parent you'll see it's going to be difficult and Mm. so I want to discuss you know like what like our thoughts on sexuality and how it should be discussed with pre-teenagers and teenagers and however early you want to define it because I think it's I think people are sometimes worried about having an opinion. So here's my opinion on it. So I think there's so much about sex that needs to be discussed at an early age, like early age, because I feel like our society is so limited and sees like the discussion as just like, oh, like, why would you want to talk about sex? Like all you like all there is to discuss is like, what is sex or whether or not to have sex or when to have sex. And it's just like, Yes, also you should be discussing those, but it's not just about that. It's not just about when or whether you should have sex or what it is. There's so many other things that you should discuss with your kids and that we should discuss with young people. Like, look, this is what consent is. This is what consent yeah. looks like. This is how, you know, you can live consent. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is... you. you people can, don't know that. Yeah, it's like I wasn't taught about consent, like, in oh, one yeah, way, <laughs> like, in roundabout ways in, in the terms of, like, oh, you you know, you shouldn't be sexually assaulted. Like, that's... I was taught that, which is great. Right, as if you have control over that. Yeah, you know, and then, like, there's also conversations like that go hand in hand with consent about like here's how to have safe sex you know like here's Mm -hmm. how like you know you're gonna want to 
you know, take these little things that will make the whole experience more enjoyable and like will make sure that you don't feel anxiety, you know, and you don't have to worry about, you know, things like an unplanned pregnancy, right? And having conversation on like what to expect. God damn, man. Like can That's so, so true. <laughs> I went in so blind. Yeah, like here's like here are the things like why do we talk about a basis? Like no, let's give fucking details to those bases so that people know what to expect. And something else that like kind of goes along with expectations and consent is like respect. Like respect is actually yeah. really important in sex because you can. Oh God. Yeah, like there's like consent is one form of respecting your partner, but like there's so many other ways that like respect pay- plays into it. You know, like mm. like even now as an adult, like respect is just so important, and especially yeah. if you're a young person, like respect is something you should feel comfortable walking away when you don't have okay and then along with that you should feel comfortable saying no like I'm not comfortable saying no to like a lot of times when I should say no like it's something that I'm working Mm. on and I have like I've improved greatly like there are some areas of my life where I'm really good at saying no but there's this is something where I know I still have to improve on like there's like saying no (laughs) is hard for me and my friends very gently scold me and that's good and I but I'm aware that maybe my education on saying no should have started a lot earlier oh of course and so yeah like there's just so much energy that goes towards like telling young people like don't have sex don't have sex don't have sex and it's happening at the detriment of like talking about things they need to know like things that will help them things that will prepare them I really agree about can, how consent needs to be incorporated into sex curriculums or even just like parental conversations about sex because I think that so many of my adult peers don't know about consent really. Like the fact that consent is ongoing, you know, like I think, okay, I think people understand ba- like the basics of consent, but then don't understand like even if you take off all your clothes, even if you're in bed, even if you're already having sex and you're just like deciding you don't want to do it, you can say that. And I think that that's something that that's definitely not mainstream accepted knowledge. And I think that preteens also, of course, like just need to know how to have safe sex. And I think I'm throwing it back to the episode that we did with Fatima about harm reduction, because I do think that this is a if this should be seen as a public health issue, not a morality issue, you know, like just teenagers are going to have sex regardless if that makes you uncomfortable, Sharon, you know, we just have to, (laughs) we just have to make sure that it's safe and consensual. Just, it is what it is. Like you can't control people's behavior like that. And instead, so like just accepting the fact that teenagers have sex, like let's make it as safe as possible by teaching consent and by like talking about, all the options for birth control and making those readily accessible too. I think apart from education, like reproductive justice and healthcare needs to be way, way, way better funded so that we have better access to birth control and also a better understanding of how birth control impacts our bodies. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's, there's so much I didn't know about birth control, like how it can cause depression, how it can cause weight gain. It can cause like severe changes in mood. You know, and th- there were definitely times where I was like, wow, I wonder if that was related to my birth control, <laughs> like mm-hmm. looking back on it, you know, and I still, I still don't know. And I think we still don't, there's so much we don't know about the effect of, of birth control on the bodies of 
of people who take it. And so I think that's also another really, really important conversation. If like we're going to be honest about actually making sex safe for teenagers. For all of us, man. All of us. All of us, true. <laughs> but especially the, the misguided and young youth. Yeah. So staying <laughs> with like education and, and our what we did learn and what we didn't learn, let's turn to like what we what we learned, you know, and how did we learn about sex? Because I don't know that things have changed that much. I mean, I would hope things have gotten better, but I honestly don't think they have. So Yeah. Yeah, do you want to talk about what you learned about sex and how you learned it? Yeah, well, I was just talking uh, about enthusiastic consent specifically. I've told you this before that the first time Joseph and I kissed, he asked for my permission. And a lot of people have found that strange. And I think it's because we've been conditioned to think that talking about sex and sexual interactions is weird you know and that like it detracts from the passion of the moment I've had people make that argument to me about like oh no we don't talk about it because like it just ruins the moment the passionate moment and like you can just feel it you can just tell and that's just like so not true because so much sexual assault happens in that gray area of like you seem into this but I'm not sure yeah so, I remember when you yeah. told me that I was surprised <laughs> just because I I had never heard from anybody. I know. That, that, <laughs> that was the first time it happened to me, for the record. <laughs> I mean, that was the first time I had ever heard of something like that happening, where, like, I've heard folks ask for consent in other things, but never to, like, yeah. kiss someone. And actually, that just happened to me, like, for the first time. Like, Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so funny, though, because, like, the, this guy was, like, about to kiss me. And then he didn't. And I was confused. I was like, oh, did I imagine that he was about to kiss me? And, like, <laughs> I made that up. Like, maybe I, there was something, like, on my hair. Like, I was I was confused. And then, like, because he went to go to strings and then he came back. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. And I was like, what are you sorry about? He's like, well, I tried to kiss you. And then I realized I didn't know if you were okay with it. So I stopped and I just felt bad. And I was like, oh, so, you, like, so that is what happened. Like, I was, <laughs> so in a roundabout way, I got asked for consent. <laughs> oh that's sweet see sometimes people improve sometimes men do the right thing <laughs> what else did, did you learn anything else <laughs> <laughs> um well i was just gonna say i went to catholic school and don't remember any sex ed we had family life which i literally forget what that was about but it, we definitely didn't talk about sex and like i just remember they were like pictures of like the anatomy of a body but then there was like post-it notes over genitalia like I'm not kidding oh wow (laughs) yeah so anything anything I learned about sex I learned from practice (laughs) yeah and like I definitely didn't go to a catholic school but I sadly didn't learn much or anything from my family you know like my mom or my oh, yeah, my either. older sister yeah. or like my aunts and I mentioned that because I'm very close to my family and mm-hmm. I think that's like where I would have liked to have learned more about this um and I obviously didn't learn anything from the sex ed course at school like what I feel like what I knew in high school was like I knew sex was a thing I knew nobody was allowed to touch me um without like my permission but mostly talking about like older men and I knew that you could get pregnant if you had sex and the sex ed that I had in class was really awful and really problematic so like they did talk to us about condoms which is fine and they talked to us about you know STIs STDs like which is like good to have that information 
they showed us a video of a birth, which was not fun, and I really, <laughs> like, was staring at the floor the whole time. That's oh. just not my jam. And they also showed us this awful, awful, awful movie where it's, like, it's, like, you're, it's about, like, a group of teenagers, right? There's, like, six of them. And, like, at the beginning of the movie, you find out that, like, this one girl who had set, had had sex only one time, just one time, unprotected sex, it was her first and only time, she got AIDS from the guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then throughout the course of the day, like, there's just, like, a lot of, like, really, really... Was this in public school? Yes. And it was, like, really wow. awful because, like, okay, so Our that... California tax dollars at work. Like, okay, so the girl, like, this is really awful, and some people might, like, want to skip 30 seconds ahead, but, like, they show scenes where, like, the girl gets drunk, right, and, like, this guy sleeps with her while she's drunk, because she's just, like, in the living room, yeah, and then he goes and, like, has sex with this other girl, and this is all, like, unprotected sex, and, like, she has sex with this other guy, so, like, by the end of the day, like, all six of them now have AIDS, and I was, like... That is insane that that was a video you were shown how old were you it was i was 15 it was at the end of my sophomore year who created that who produced that is what i want to know it was at the end of my freshman year it was at the end of my freshman year of high school and you were little you were 14 it was an awful video we were all chuckling uncomfortably through it uh i was passing notes (laughs) but yeah, that was an awful, awful video. That's just, like, awful. So that class in general was just, like, a joke. And there's, like, many practical things that I wish I had learned. Like, for example, like, <laughs> this is TMI, but whatever. It needs to be out there. This information needs to be heard. So women are supposed to pee after sex. Like, you need to pee after sex because otherwise you're, like, prone to get a UTI. And I found out about that by getting the UTI. And I was fucking pissed because I was just like, Yeah, how? UTIs are painful. Yes, I was, like, 22 when this happened. I was like, how mm. have I reached 22 years of age and nobody has fucking informed me that I need to have sex after peeing. I think I learned so, that late in life too. Yeah, so I went around on like an investigation and like I asked my friends and my cousins like if they knew they were supposed to pee after sex and they were all like, "Well, I realized it when I got a UTI." And I was like, "No fucking <laughs> no. way." And then I so after doing this investigation like with folks of my generation and realizing like we had all been set up to fail, I, like, moved on to the generation that was supposed to teach us this. So I talked to my mom, and I talked to my aunts, and I talked to my grandmother. I talked to everybody. And they were like, well, I either I got, like, one, one or two responses. One of them, the annoying one, was just like, oh, well, I just naturally have to pee after sex anyway, so I've never had this problem. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> wow. I roll. Okay, my bad. I roll. I know. And then the other one was just like, well, I found out when I – got a UTI but nobody told me either so I thought like it's just kind of something everybody just kind of had to do and figured it out and I was just like yeah so you were also set up to fail but when you learned you just didn't think to pass it on to me so it was just like it's just been generations of women getting UTIs Mm -hmm. it's awful awful I think that there that's why there needs to be a culture of like talking more openly about sex because that's why I said earlier that it actually is really important for me to talk about sex with my close friends because, like, you legit learn from each other. Like, you legit learn, oh, yeah, I should pee after sex so that I don't get a UTI. Yes. Yes. And that's, I wanted to talk about, like, shows like Sex in the City, like, which are problematic and we can talk about that and, like, many things. Yeah, there's lots to talk about. But 
so much of it is also a proxy for like sex ed like samantha like bless her and (laughs) like having close friends who you can like talk about these things with and really close guy friends who can like talk to you about things like openly has just been so key you know and like being able to talk without embarrassment and I just feel like we should be able to do that and you know and like I know right now maybe because of the national conversation the there might be like general a general chilling effect but like with people you love and who you're comfortable with and who you have a good relationship with like this is something we need to be talking about in respectful ways and you know very honestly yeah and I think if anything like the Me Too movement just shows that we need to be having these conversations more openly amongst yeah. each other because if we don't, then there's just these like open secrets of misogyny and sexual assault. I agree. So you wanted to talk about how the dichotomy about Santa y Puta has impacted your life? Yes. Yes, because I feel like I've been on the side that benefits because of the dichotomy and so I want to talk about that so like I've always done well in school you know I've always been have good grades I enjoy being in like student organizations and I enjoy taking on leadership roles and I'm generally like fairly responsible and so you know to my family and my community they my community they always kind of placed me into like the santa category like a saint Mm -hmm. and that's always made me uncomfortable because I, I'm a Capricorn sun, but I'm an Aquarius moon, and I don't feel like anybody sees that, and <laughs> it was particularly like an issue. What does an Aquarius moon mean? I am not as like Earth energy as people think. I have a lot of air in my chart, and so I like. Yeah, actually, I feel like I misread you as like very Earth sign heavy, but you're actually like not. I'm not. I love going out. I like staying out. I love seeing the sunrise. Like, I like getting drunk. Like, if somebody on the streets offers me a shot, I'm likely to take it. Like, I like to move from place to place. I mean, I like getting drunk, too. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But, like, I like to do it out on the streets. Like, (laughs) bitch. (laughs) I go out, too. Okay, I went out last night. Thank you very much. And I stayed out until 2 a.m. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I enjoy that. That's my jam. And so, yeah, it's very, people are very taken aback when they realize this side of me. And anyways, but like, so this, back to the point, I digress. I'm sorry. Um, no, that was me because I want to talk about Aquarius. <laughs> there's, we, we have issues. Okay. But not emotional ones. Okay. So, okay. My point is that it was always very problematic when I saw others compared to me, right? Like other parents or like other classmates themselves would compare themselves to me because like I was like, like, you know, held up as a model and it's just like, no, like, no, 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 no. Like the way you are being doesn't make you any less of like a valuable person. And so I've always felt like that I've been, involuntarily placed into like these toxic comparisons yeah me too yeah but it's like also an opportunity right so like what I've tried to do with that is okay you're gonna everybody's gonna paint me like as a perfect child like good responsible girl well then I'm gonna be very very publicly honest about all the things I do and believe so that I like am fucking with your worldview so 
like all those things that you like are trying to shame and trying to teach your kid to not do, I'm very openly doing them and talking about them because I like need to push back on that. So like my relationship with my mom, like she has had to go through this because that's one of the ways I'm open about it. Like I am very like blunt and honest with her. And then she tells her friends and like others. And so others realize, you know, like, oh, like I'm not like the saint they imagined and that like, you know, so my mom, <laughs> I've made her grow through this with me. So, but it's been really good too. Cause our relationship is now really good. Like I remember this one time I told her I was going to go hook up with this guy. And like, we, like she asked me where I was going. And I was like, oh, I got a hotel room with this guy. And she was just like, <laughs> but then like by the end of the, before I like headed out, she like helped me choose my shoes, you know? I love that. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And like, I love being able to do that with my mom. And it's so nice to be able to tell like my mom, like, oh, I'm going to be at a hotel room. Like, you don't have to worry about me. Like, I'm not going to come home, but like, I'm fine. And like, and it's like so much safer too, because then like, she knows where you are, you know, like if anything were to go wrong, she knows where you are. Like being able to be open actually makes everybody safer. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I just like do that all the time. Like, so (laughs) at a family hangouts, like one of the things that I was um, infuriating my like very conservative family members was like talking about all the sex I have like you know and like being very open about it and like making it clear that I like have no plans to date you know and like I'm just enjoying myself and like my grandmother has had to like get used to this and I just like I I've I like to do that because at the end of the day I can turn around and it's like and what like what do you have to say to like you have nothing to tell me like no me puedes decir nada like what like what am I doing that is immoral or anything like and people can't tell me anything so I feel yeah I feel like I've I've loved getting to that point because that's why my relationship with my mom is better because it's like what is what is she gonna say to me (laughs) yeah yeah my so my super catholic family really abides by this ni santa ni puta or by like with the either santa or puta they call me and it has hurt me in many ways because it's made me feel like they don't love my full self. Like, it makes me feel like I can't really show up as my full self. It feels like I have to put on the show of being this, like, virginal, pure person. You know, because sexuality is a huge part of who I am, right? Like, and it's, I think my relationship with my mom has gotten better now that we can talk about the fact that my partner, Joseph, and I are going to be moving in together really soon. Mm-hmm. You know, and, like, you know, I mentioned earlier that, like, she would talk down on cousins who were doing the literal thing that I'm doing right now, and she's just evolved so much because, like, recently she told me, like, wow, you're actually so smart to live with Joseph before marrying him. Like, I was tonta back then and just got married without seeing if we could actually, like, live together and get along, and I wish I had it. Yeah, yeah, right? And it's, like, I, like, applaud her for being so vulnerable in that moment because she was just basically like, you know what? Like, I didn't make a good decision, and, like, you made a good decision. Um, Because she's like, I wish I had known that I, you know, whether or not me and your dad could get along or not, which, like, it turns out they don't get along that well, (laughs) you know? And, like, you really do get to know a person at a different level when you live with them, you know? Yeah. And I think it's dope that she realized that and that she, like, can see it from that perspective instead of just from this like patriarchal purity virginity thing yeah okay what you just described reminded me like that's why like I think it's so important for us to do like talk about sex openly when we can and like in you know because 
I feel like it creates the space for others to be able to also do it. And like, like for you, you created the space for your mom, you know? And for me, like I'm particularly concerned about like my younger cousins. Like I want to make sure they have the space to not be repressed or ashamed in the way that I experienced it. And I think like in this situation, like people like me and you who are seen as like very bookish and very nerdy and very like Mm -hmm. high achieving, like for better. Yes, exactly. Like we're the ones that should take the hits. Like, we, like, because it's, like, you can't tell me shit about school. You can't tell me shit about, like, my work ethic. You can't tell me shit about, like... My financial independence. Or or about, like, you know, being a thoughtful person because I do a lot of volunteer work. Like, you can't tell me I'm a bad person, like, on no grounds. So I'm going to tell you about all these things that you consider bad because I can take the hit and that way someone else doesn't. Yeah. And it's it's been really healing to see, like how my mom realizing that and realizing how much like patriarchy has damaged her I she wouldn't name it like that but that is what she's talking about at the end of the day and it's been healing to see her realize that and I think apart from my family it's unfortunately some men that I've dated have abided by it too I think at least that's what I suspected because like there is one person in particular who's uncomfortable talking about what he liked or wanted to try which I think is ultimately rooted in this idea that your girlfriend shouldn't be a hoe or whatever, you know? Like, I don't know. He had, like, very immature thinking, mm-hmm. and I think that it was rooted in that dichotomy, ultimately. Yeah. I, I want to... We've, like, talked about this for a long time, but I think it's worthwhile, and I, I think, like, we should get to our last two questions because about academia. Because mm-hmm. I think for those of us who are in academia or in academic spaces, like, sex is not at all mentioned or or takes on like something else you know like it's like in academia it's a I was gonna say it's very dry but it is um it's like I described it as very sterile it's a very sterile environment yeah you know and so we are we have to talk about sex in a lot of ways especially like we're talking about issues like abortion rights or like sex work right when like you know in criminal Mm -hmm. law when it criminalizes prostitution and yeah um so there's there's times when we have to talk about it, but it's there's always like a taint towards it. And like it's like there's just like this very strong vibe in academia that like sex is something that's improper to discuss and something that's like very base. And like when mm-hmm. it comes to like women and sex, it's usually in terms mm-hmm. of like immorality. And mm-hmm. so like it's it's hard to come around across like sex positive material in academia, you know, and so like, you know, academia for you know as much as it holds itself out to be like rational and detached from like the human experience like it kind of like follows the santa y puta dichotomy you know like academia kind of furthers that for women too yeah i think that all the sex positive stuff i follow is through social media actually through like people of color on social media is most of where i get my sex positivity body positivity info yeah and i just agree with everything you said i'm not gonna harp too much on it because i think you said it well it's taboo to talk about sex casually in academia like that's it yeah which i have to say like since this is a legal podcast i'll make this note that worked out in the favor of like your fourth amendment rights in one case where like a justice was very uncomfortable with like talking about sex and how you would control like whether couples were using condoms or not and so because like he didn't want to discuss sex or imagine sex or any of it like fourth amendment rights were better that day because of that so i'll just mention that (laughs) well it's one positive one one (laughs) okay and then i wanted to mention 
we're, we're getting into the layers. There's so many layers here. And I think that's why this conversation is so long. But I think it's important to then we're talking about academia. Now let's bring our like ethnicity and race into it. So as Latinas in white spaces, like I feel like that's had an impact on sexuality and like the expression of sexuality. So do you want to do, do you feel like it's impacted you? Do you feel like because you're a Latina in these spaces, like something has been different than if you were just like like a white woman oh yeah definitely I think it I'm very aware of how I present and how people read me I'm mindful of how dark my lipstick is how intense my highlight is how short my dresses are how tall my heels are because I know that subconsciously and consciously the people that I work with view me differently than the white women that I work with and it's like I've just learned that over time because there's just been moments where I've been sexualized or just been made to no big people have just made me aware of the fact that they see me in a sexual way. And I've just realized that it's because I'm a Latina woman. Like it's just through the experiences that I've had, I've come to realize that. And so sadly it's just, it's a part of how I operate every day. You know, it's like, I'm not saying that I abide by respectability politics necessarily, I'm just saying that a girl has to survive and keep her job. And I'm mindful always of how, what I wear and what effect that'll have on the person who's like looking at me. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Like how lessons and how you're perceived and read are very important, even though they're difficult and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, because like, I, I'm thinking about college and I'm thinking about law school, which have both been like residential experiences. Like I've lived at my college and I live at law school. So it's not just like the the separation between like the academic and the white spaces and like my personal life has been non-existent. Like when mm-hmm. you're living at school, you're... Which is so hard. Yeah, everything's like melded together. And mm-hmm. so I definitely had experiences in college where I very quickly learned like how white men who had never met a person of color before you know this was the midwest um would hypersexualize me in ways that made me really uncomfortable you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the fact that you speak spanish like comes up real quick and it's really uncomfortable and so that like has 100% made me keep my distance from like the men in these spaces like in college and in law school like i did not date in college and i do not date here at law school either and it, that sucks. Like, it really sucks. Yeah. It's part of why I'm yeah. so miserable when I'm here. Because it's mm-hmm. just... It's just... Slim pickings out there. Besides that, it just kind of sucks. <laughs> and, like, not being around, like, people of color just really sucks. And It does. Yeah. So, like, you know, when I go home to L.A. or, like, this summer when I was in New Orleans or when I was in Nashville, like, you know, I feel like I, I can be free and, like, thrive differently than I can here. So... Yeah, it's just rough mm-hmm. all over. Do you have anything else you want to add about sex? I feel pretty, feel like we did our <laughs> good thing and talked about it for a while, and now I'm like kind of ready to move on. Yeah, we should move on. Okay. Okay, let's talk about our case. This is a rough case to discuss, Mm -hmm. Buck v. Bill, and I just 
want folks to know this case was decided in 1927 and it's really fucked up and the shit that the justice wrote and said is really fucked up and I just felt like it was important to make sure folks are aware of that before they continue listening. So this case is important because it approved the sterilization of people who were deemed to have like quote unquote a disability and I'll get into the numbers later but this is what that this is what the case is about. And one of the most known quotes from the decision in this case is three generations of imbeciles is enough. And so another important con- important historical context about this case is that it was occurring while the eugenics movement was flourishing. And the eugenics movement was this idea in science that there, that race was based in biology, that there were, there are real biological differences between the races such that some can be said to be biologically superior over others. And it wasn't, not so much like races as much also just like, like genetics of a person, which like race is very tied into that. But like when you're thinking of someone who's differently abled, you know, for a eugenicist, like that was also just as just the in their minds bad that you didn't want people to have you know i think like you can say that they ascribe to darwin's idea of survival of the fittest and that they applied that logic to humans and a lot of that was about race but that's not relevant to this case right now because this was about like people who were deemed to have quote-unquote mental disabilities Yeah, so let's get into the party. So the plaintiff is Carrie Buck, and she was a woman who was institutionalized by her foster family, and I'll get into the facts in a minute. Um, And the defendant was Belle, who was the superintendent of the institution that sought an order to sterilize Buck. So Belle was trying to sterilize Carrie Buck, and that's where this case began. So this case was actually a test case that was brought by the eugenics movement that they wanted to see if the laws they were, you know, encouraging that states passed and were helping states to write, like whether they were considered constitutional and you could start sterilizing people. This is really, really scary. And you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Alec, you know, because you don't think that there's like these insidious movements. You wouldn't necessarily think that there's like these insidious movements that are bringing these lawsuits forward and yet when you probe into the history you realize that oh wow there was like a whole movement behind this case yeah I mean so many of our laws are the efforts of like lobbying you know and state level local level really goes unscrutinized as much as like as like in the way that the federal level goes because yeah so this was a, a state case so the family tree that's important here to know is Carrie's mother Emma she was institutionalized at the Lynchburg Colony for epileptics and feeble-minded. And so Emma was rumored to be a prostitute, and so she was committed after she had Carrie out of wedlock for being feeble-minded. And I read, like, it's not, the history is not super clear, but I looked at multiple, like, different sources, and it seemed that Emma was actually married when she gave birth to Carrie, but, like, her and the, the man separated later. 
But her marriage status is playing a, a big role into why she was institutionalized and why she's being categorized, like, quote unquote, feeble minded and why she's being rumored to be a prostitute. Like this all has to do with like her marriage status and kind of building off the conversation we just had, like her se- control of her sexuality. This is really important history to uncover because. There's a total history, particularly during this time period, of institutionalizing women for quote-unquote hysteria. And, you know, it was like a lot of mischaracterizing women who basically deviated from the norm in any way, like Emma, because she was a sex worker, and and deeming that to be a mental illness and institutionalizing them. So even though this seems like a really scary fact pattern, this is actually like a part of a larger phenomenon that occurred at the turn of the 20th century. Yes. So Emma, Carrie's mother, placed Carrie into foster care, and she was sent to live with this family called the Dobbs. So Carrie went to school through the sixth grade, and her school records, you know, say like show that her teachers considered her very good. And so this is you know, time is passing, Carrie's a little older, and while she's living at the Dobbs, it seems like she was, so she was raped by a member of the household, and it's, I've read multiple, like, varying accounts on whether it was the foster dad or his nephew, and it's not super clear that the pregnancy she had was a result of the rape, but it, from what I've had, like, I've had a professor talk about this case, it seemed like the pregnancy was related to the rape, and Carrie was 16 when this happened, um, so it's not super clear, but all of this is happening, right? Like she's at the Dobbs at this foster family and she's not being cared for. She's in fact being abused, you know, sexually. And so she gets pregnant. So as a result of her pregnancy and having the child, the Dobbs put her in into an institution, you know, after she had the, the child and they claim that she was feeble minded and the Lynchburg colony, they didn't question it at all. And they admitted her. And this is all, yes, it's fucking infuriating. Like this family, like not only do you harm this person who was placed in your care, but then as a punishment for something you guys, y'all did that was really fucked up. You like, she's the, anyway. Okay. This also shows how easy it is for folks who are poor to be criminalized and otherized by the state. Cause it's, I think that's to me, I think part of what's going on here. Like I think. Her being in the foster care system, her mom being a sex worker and not having um, another person to be providing income. I'm assuming that she was low income. Did you yes, yeah. come across that? Yeah. yeah. This so, is all low income folk. So then that, it, that to me just seems like it just, I don't know, this is another example of what we talk about all the time of, <clears throat> of poverty being criminalized. Yes. Okay. So Carrie's daughter, Vivian. So that's her daughter's name. As the case got underway, so Vivian is not with Carrie anymore, right? Uh, Vivian also goes into like foster care or something like that. So as the case got underway and like the started and and the superintendent wanted to have Carrie sterilized, some like medical person, maybe like a social worker evaluated Carrie's daughter, Vivian. Vivian was seven months old when they concluded she was not quite normal and feeble-minded based on observations, like she didn't look at a coin that was put in front of her. What? Yeah. So 
after Carrie was admitted into the institution, um, Virginia passed a law that allowed the involuntary sterilization of mentally ill people labeled feeble-minded, and it was based on a model law that was written by eugenicists. And, you know, taking advantage of this and, again, to see whether the laws were constitutional, the superintendent of the colony sought an order to sterilize Carrie, and that's where the case began. And at this time, I just really want to point out, like, when they're trying to sterilize her, Carrie's 18 years old. That's tragic. Yeah, 18. And, like, the type of evidence that was brought into the case, like, onto the record in front of the trial court, like, the you like the eugenics record office like got involved obviously because this is again like their whole movement and so this is like evidence that was in the record and I just like am quoting excerpts from it but so yeah this is like what the courts were evaluate were using as evidence just this person's statements that were like mental defectiveness evidenced by social and economic inadequacy has record during they life... They literally said because she was poor. Yes. Has record during life of immorality, prostitution, and untruthfulness. Has had wow. one illegitimate child. This girl comes from a shiftless, ignorant, and worthless class of people. And the person who wrote this never even met Carrie. Not that, like, having met her would have, like, done anything. But it's like, why is this person who's from the eugenics record office have any business submitting evidence to the court to be considered against Carrie? Like, what in the greatest of fucks yeah and oh yeah you mean like immorality and prostitution oh you mean when she was raped right so again all all kinds of fucked up but the issue before the court as like we've alluded to is did the virginia statute which authorized the sterilization deny buck carry the right to due process of the law and the equal protection of the laws as protected by the 14th amendment and so there's this, there's this both a claim based on due process, which is about procedure. And like, we've talked about that before, like what's the procedure and is the procedure like up to par? And there's also an equal protection claim, which is like when you identify a group of people and you treat them differently, that like you can go then forth making an equal protection claim about like disparate treatment. So those are the two like, like legal footings on which this goes forward. Do you want to talk about what happened before it came to the Supreme Court? Yeah, so at the Supreme Court of Appeals of Virginia, they affirmed the trial court's order to sterilize Carrie. And what did our great Supreme Court of the United States decide? They found that Virginia statute did not violate the Constitution. They said that the hearing procedure provided before the sterilization of those who were to be deemed feeble-minded did satisfy due process under the 14th Amendment. I want to know what he, what the procedure was. The fact that the procedure was limited to people housed in state institutions did not deny them equal protection. Hmm. And it was decided 8 to 1 on only one person dissented. Yeah, and just to follow up and be clear about the history here. So after the case, Carrie Buck was sterilized in October 1927, so that same year. And oh. I read that in 1928, Virginia officials also sterilized Carrie Buck's sister, but her sister was told that the operation was to remove her appendix. And wow. She, yeah, and she didn't find out she was sterile until 1980. I mean, there's a whole history of women being sterilized with their knowledge and consent, which yes. I think we're going to get into a little later. Yes. 
And so folks have the numbers. By 1930, 24 states had passed similar sterilization laws because now it was shown that they are constitutional. So, hey, states, you can go ahead and pass them. And about 60,000 people were sterilized under them. Virginia alone sterilized 7,500 people between 1927 and 1972 when the law was replaced. Like, these laws were on the books until the Mm -hmm. 70s. Mm -hmm. And it's actually never been overturned. Yeah. This decision. Yep. No, there's no negative history here after the case. The case stands as good law, but just the laws on which it was based are no longer, that they've been repealed. So the majority opinion is written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, and I think it's important to say his name because he is someone who, if you go to law school, you're going to read a lot of his opinions, and yeah. he's often in a lot of ways held up and like, oh, look mm-hmm. out. Like he, he's just very, very respected. Yes, and he's, he establishes a lot of law for us that we still abide by and, and quote-unquote like respect. And so I think he then also sh- needs to be known for this opinion because he he wrote this fucking shit. So if you read through it, he goes over the procedure and he finds it adequate, right? So no due process violation. But like this is like four sentences that are really like summarize his the entirety of his reasoning. Like I think these this alone, you get the sense for how this opinion reads. And this is an opinion that I do suggest you go and read because it's just infuriating. So here I'm quoting. (sighs) Okay. It would be strange if I could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned. So let me just pause here and say, he's saying that like, why ask people who are quote unquote, like undesirable, like asking them to become sterile isn't that big of a deal. It's just a small sacrifice. And because quote unquote, they are undesirable, they don't even really care. And it's not that big of a sacrifice to them either. So let because they already sap the strength of the state. Yes. What does that sound like? That's what the welfare queen rhetoric mirrors. Yeah. So I just wanted to pause there and translate what his overly wordy sentence translate was saying. the racism. Yes. Okay, and so, the yeah, classism. Yes. So I'm quoting again. So often not felt to be such by those concerned in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three <gasps> generations of imbeciles are enough. End quote. I don't... I just feel like that stands for itself, and it's just really awful. The saddest part of this case is that this that sterilization didn't end here because they're, like you were wanting to talk about the there's sterilization that's occurred to women of color in Los Angeles and this recently I, it's a, not that long ago right people right. are alive who this happened to mm-hmm. and it always affects working class low-income communities obviously the wealthy folks are shielded from this um and I wanted to point out that sterilization has also been offered as a way to reduce prison sentences in the south yeah, I, 
am disgusted and it's awful and this isn't history that that's that we're that far away from and some of these ideas still permeate our own society and I I very much feel bad Yvette because we've definitely like haven't discussed disability rights or disability law and that's something that we owe because I've learned from um what like just what I do know about it that like you know, the way we think about disability today is really awful. Like, a disability is only a disability because of the way we've structured our society. Right. And Right. I think it's so important to, like, really flesh that out for folks. Like, you know, these, it's actually not, like, the frame shouldn't be disability. Like, we should talk about how we've constructed a world around which certain we've made it so that certain folks have difficulties navigating the world as it exists now like i think we should place the onus on us to make the world more accessible yes exactly and you know that honestly though it's kind of infuriating because like that that in and of itself like you know trying to sterilize someone because they're quote-unquote feeble-minded if and like because you're viewing that as a disability that full stop is awful Mm -hmm. but what is also happening here is that you're also just sterilizing women for not being married which is also just awful like Mm -hmm. like those those are both happening at the same time and those are both awful yep so I, yeah, what, do you have anything else you want to say? I'm just kind of like, this is just bullshit. Yeah, no, I think we've said it all. So instead of recommendations, um, someone from our Instagram wanted to ask us a question and mm-hmm. I know in the past we've done, you know, kind of like emails from folks. And so I wanted to, instead of recommendations, just do the listener question. Yvette, did you want to read it or? Yeah. Hi. Plus exclamation point. My question (laughs) is basically, how do you face racism or intimidation tactic from peers? I recently had a very intense and prolonged scenario with an older white male who thought that my own approach to a more global approach, i.e. non-Western materials and topics, would, quote, cause students to be prejudiced against white professors like him. He went on to argue that a course that focused on Mexican culture was, quote, nationalist. I was thankfully supported by my dean and vice president of college, but it took a lot out of me. I got depressed a few times in the scope of a couple months, and I was upset about how he acted out with little visible to me disciplinary action. I spoke up and stayed true to my teaching philosophy, but had few people in my life to talk to about it. I would love to hear your suggestions if you have any. I still love teaching, and I feel empowered to keep up my work, but I could use a spiritual hug right about now. Like, I've been listening to lots of Mazdar. I don't know. I don't know that reference. Do you? I do. Uh, I have a couple songs that I like to listen to. They're very, it's very soothing. I'll send it to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think about this a lot. I've gone through a similar situations a lot, and unfortunately, they haven't even all been <laughs> perpetrated by white people. But I've just been in situations where, like, I've, like, my ideas have been shot down and I've been made to feel, like, like, the way that I'm being shut down and the way that I'm being condescended to is a direct product of the fact that 
I'm a Latina woman and that they think they can treat me and talk to me that way. And I've also done what you've done about um, reporting this, like if you feel an injustice, like trying to take it to the higher ups and get something solved. Uh, like the the non, oh, I was gonna say, um, earlier I was talking about a nonprofit that was really toxic and I tried to, there were like white women there who I felt like were, who I felt like devalued all of the hard work of the Latina women who worked there and I tried to get that fixed and nothing really happened and that can be a really disempowering thing um and then lately I've been navigating an authority figure in my life who I think is also toxic um and I'm like trying also to fix that but I'm also preparing myself emotionally for the possibility that nothing is going to happen because this person is an authority figure um but I've realized like someone recently said that being honest is their self-care and that struck me so much because I think that that's true for me I think even though I was really disempowered by the fact that nothing happened after I reported these people I felt really brave in telling the truth and it was freeing and rewarding in and of itself to do that and to stand up for myself because I feel like, I don't know, it just feels like, it's like, it feels like an act of loving myself to stand up for myself because I, I stand up for and advocate for others all the time. And sometimes I like investing in it, even if I feel like I'm not going to like, quote unquote, win. I've realized that just the act of speaking my truth can be really free. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if like, the listener had felt that at least or at all when they told their dean and their vice president but sometimes even like for me just speaking out and like being proud of myself for that is is enough but I don't know what you how have you dealt with something like that yeah I think in some forms or others you know you're constantly running into things like this from your classmates and professors and I think, I don't know, I don't, I don't have much to add to what you said. I agree with what you said. And I think that the only thing I would add is that I've tried to be a little bit more creative than I was before in the sense that I'm like, I, or not even like less creative, but like my priorities have changed. Like I'm now less interested in getting access to white spaces and I'm more interested in spending that energy in creating my own space yeah and I agree I agree yeah so like the Stanford Law Review right like law review journals are this thing that's like soon as seen as super prestigious for reasons that escape me because it seems like the dumbest job in the world but it's a really prestigious thing that like law students like crawl over each other to get and you know often you know minority law students are under represented even in comparison to like the representation in the law school population which is already really low so I don't know like I was interested in like starting like Stanford Law Review in color and just having I was thinking about that recently about how we never did that yeah and I think it's because like at the end of the day I just don't care about academia and like it's not something it wasn't it was something that was never going to be for me like I was doing it to support my like walk um friends that really place the value on it and so I don't know I'm more interested in efforts like that where it's like you know what I'm like like for example I'm really considering trying to 
get some credit for teaching myself a course next quarter because, you know, there's no classes that I, I mean, there's classes I'm taking disability law and Native American, Indian law. It's called Indian law, which is dumb, but Indian law next quarter, which I've heard are dope classes. But like beyond that, like I want to teach myself, you know, like I'm sorry, like I'm done trying to get this school to add dope classes to its curriculum. Like I'd rather just like teach my own course and get like have a professor give me credit for it somehow. So yeah, I'm just like, I don't know. It's just an alternative. You know, it's a different strategy. It's another tool to have in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. Okay, we are close to, we're 18 minutes short of the two hours mark. So I oh think <laughs> this yeah. episode is uh, quite the content. Uh, Yvette, mm-hmm. anything else you want to add? Mm-mm. No. Okay, uh, for those of you still listening, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I don't